This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so happy to see Eleanor Brown's face this week. She is exactly the person I need to see. Any other family is out now, but you may know her from the BNN Discover pick, The Weird Sisters, which was more than a minute ago. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was also The Light of Paris, and then there was the anthology set in Paris. But we are going to talk about one of the best books I've read this year. It is hilarious. It is big hearted. I love these women. I love their kids. I love their husband. I love everything about this book. And I'm going to let you set it up though, Eleanor, because I have no connection to this book other than you wrote it and I loved it. And I think this is going to be really important when people hear what it's about. I hope so. Um, So thank you so much for having me. So here's the short, the short pitch. Any other family is the story of three sets of parents uh, who become a family of their own when they adopt biological siblings. They are on what uh, one of them likes to call the first annual family vacation. The others aren't so sure where they are going to be in a house together for two weeks, all the parents and all the kids. And uh, they get a call from the children's birth mother saying that she's pregnant again, and she wants them to find the uh, parents for this child. So when did this novel start for you? I think this novel started for me um, on February 15th, 2018, when I was watching the Olympics with my husband, and I got a phone call from my OBGYN, and she said, uh, hey, listen, I had a woman come in yesterday for her annual exam and it turns out she's six months pregnant and she wants to make a plan for adoption. Do you want a baby? (laughs) This was not a call I was expecting, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but we were just sort of launched into this world of adoption and adoptive parenting. And, you know, the way that I write my books is that I come with questions. Mm -hmm. So with this book, I just had so many questions about adoption and motherhood. And, and, you know, you've read my books, so you know that I'm very interested in what makes a family and how does our family influence Uh us. And that's all part of this book too. So I just had all these questions and I give them to the characters. So I created this family and I said, you figure it out because I can't do it. One of the things I love about your novels too, though, is that anyone can have a coming of age. You don't have to be a kid. You don't have to be a teenager. You don't have to be a young adult. Anyone can work through where they need to be. And we've got three women who are really the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. There's Tabitha, there's Ginger, and there's Elizabeth. And I like to think of Tabitha as sort of the bossy big sister and Ginger is kind of a little passive, but she's a little more sensible. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth has some growing up to do. And she's a little overwhelmed because she has an infant and she was not fully prepared for what that means. And for some of us who are very happy to be aunties, <laughs> Elizabeth may have proved out some stuff for us. But can we talk about how these women came to you and how you figured out that they were going to be able to tell this story that you hadn't figured out how to tell? (laughs) That's a, that's a really good question. Um, So I think, you know, if we go back to the weird sisters and very Mm -hmm. interested in family dynamics and very interested in birth order. and, And like you said, there is a little bit of that birth order structure happening here, even though these women are not actually sisters, Mm -hmm. they kind of are sisters. 
they say there are only two stories, right? Like you go on a journey or a stranger comes to town, right? Um, so I think I like to squish those together. I really like the ship of fools story. I'm going to yep. put all these people together. And so at that point, you just kind of have to ask yourself, like, who's going to drive each other the most crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I, I think I, I thought about was the way that we bring our personal baggage to parenting, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't automatically become, just like when you turn 18, you don't automatically become an adult and figure everything out, right? When you become a parent, you don't automatically become an, a whole unbroken, competent person. You're still the same hot mess that you always were. You know, so you have Tabitha who comes from this background where she was an only child. She had this, she was a very lonely only, right? Not all children, not all, all mm -hmm. only children like that, but she was. So she is determined that this is going to be like a big, happy family. And uh, then there's Ginger who had a little more chaotic of a childhood. And so she really wants to keep everybody at arm's length. And you can guess how Tabitha feels about that. And then Elizabeth. <laughs> who, as you mentioned, mentioned for multiple reasons, is just completely overwhelmed mm -hmm. by motherhood and maybe a little bit um, surprised and disappointed by it. Um, you know, if it's this thing that you've hungered after for so long, and then all of a sudden you actually have a little person you have to take care of. It's a little overwhelming. So these, um, so it's kind of like who is going to cause each other the most problems. So that mm -hmm. was kind of how I set up how they were going to come into conflict with each other. And I will say it's fun. I mean, they're all piled into a big house and Tabitha's husband, Perry, is with them and Elizabeth's husband, John, is with them. And Ginger is a single mom and she's doing fine as a single mom. Her dynamic with her fellow mom, Tabitha and Elizabeth, is really interesting because she does sort of see both of their points of view, mm -hmm. but then occasionally will diminish her own simply because it's easier. I mean, it's classic middle child stuff. Right. It's total middle child, right? Right. <laughs> I'm going to be haunted like that forever. Yeah, she's she's kind of the peacemaker, um, although she would never define herself that way. But it's like, oh, it's just so exhausting. And one of the things that, you know, that I kind of thought about a lot when I was writing this book and, and before I came into it, one of the things I want people to take away from it is adoptive families are just like any other family, right? Mm -hmm. Family is complicated. This family is no different just because they are not genetically related. And so, yeah, you just kind of, sometimes you just have to kind of grit your teeth and say, I'm going to pick my battles. And this is not the battle I'm going to fight if we're all going to be trapped into house together for two weeks. I'm a big believer in found family. I think you just, you can find so much joy in making your own way when you need to. But did one of the women show up first or did they sort of show up as a contingent and you sort of knew? I don't want to really lean on the phrase archetype, but you sort of did know that you needed representations of these different POVs, but did someone show up before the others? That is a good question. I think Tabitha showed up first mm. um, uh, because, you know, she's in charge of everything and she yeah. runs everything. And I think she, you know, people with the, with the weird sisters, people would always ask me which sister was me. Right. And I would always say they're all me, right? Because they are. And, and it's very much the same with these mm -hmm. three women. Um, but Tabitha, I think, was maybe the part of motherhood that I was wrestling with that, like, you know, Pinterest mom, like mm -hmm. perfect controlling. Uh, I have to give my child every wonderful experience, you know, and everything has to be amazing. Uh, so maybe that's why why she showed up um, first. And then Elizabeth uh, showed up, I think, after that, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, one of the things one of the things that is tied very tightly to adoption, although this is not the story of every adoptive parent 
one of the things that's tied that's tied very tightly is uh, fertility issues, right. um, and and that's something that Elizabeth deals with. And so, uh, so I knew I I wanted to sort of find some expression with that. Ginger, I wrestled with for a long time, um, kind of like what was her issue? Mm-hmm. She had a she had a, a a sort of new boyfriend's like first serious relationship very late in her life kind of showed up for a while, and then he he had to go. Sorry. R.I.P. Nice man. I don't even remember what your name was. So yeah, that's kind of the, <laughs> the order they, they came to me. Let's step back from them for a second and look at the siblings. There's Phoebe. There's a set of twins, Taylor and Tate. Mm-hmm. And then there's also an infant, Violet. So Violet, she has more to do, less to say. Right. Twins have quite a lot to do and say. And Phoebe seems to say more because she is the oldest. So can we just talk about these kids for a second and how they ended up with their respective parents? So what happened was they were being raised by their birth mother's mother. So their Uh grandmother. Um, And she uh, she died somewhat suddenly. The kids were going into foster care, which is what happens. Their birth mother was not ready to parent. She was not comfortable with it. And so. Um, Phoebe knew Ginger. Ginger was a volunteer at her school. And so she basically requested that Ginger um, be her be her mom. And then Tabitha and Perry had been looking um, to adopt and they were willing to take on twins, which not everybody is willing to do. And then Elizabeth and John, well, I won't tell the story of how they come into the family because I kind of love that story and I want people okay. to discover it while, while they read it. Um, but they they come in later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I was super reluctant about the kids for a couple of reasons. One okay. is, I don't know about you, but I feel like kids are so hard to nail in fiction. Like yes. it's so hard to get a good voice mm-hmm. for them. They either sound too young or too old. They don't sound real. Um, and also they can really, it's like, what is it? What is it that performer said? You never, you never act, you never perform with kids or dogs because they always mm-hmm. steal the stage, stage, right? And so, you know, they can eat up a lot of space. And there's nine characters in this book, right? Just this family is nine characters. So I was a little nervous about it. Um, but yeah, so Phoebe is, you know, kind of on on the border of tweenhood. So she mm-hmm. is sort of wrestling with with some issues. Um, the twins are are younger. Um, and so they do have questions, but mostly they are just still that that young kind of force of nature, that tornado that kids are kind of, you know, first grade. Um, but yeah, so Phoebe is really the one who I think articulates most, but the twins have questions too, especially when they're, their birth mother, they find out their birth mother's pregnant again. They have questions about this as kids who have been uh, adopted um, do have questions about, about their family. And it's interesting to see the parents' concerns. I mean, more specifically, the mother's concerns, because I will say Perry is possibly one of the most relaxed, normal dads in fiction. Um, John's John's finding his way, and that's okay. Yeah. But, you know, Perry's just kind of like, he's that dad where you're just like, oh, I don't have to worry. Like, everything's fine. Well, and if you were married to Tabitha, you wouldn't have to worry because it would all be taken care of. <laughs> and that's exactly it. But these kids, too, they do represent in a lot of ways their parents' concerns, their parents' fears but about themselves, not necessarily about the tiny, I mean, the tiny people all seem fine. <laughs> Granted, it's fiction, but they do all seem fine in the, in the grand scheme of things. They have people yeah. who love them and feed them and clothe them and raise them and yeah. all of that. But it's interesting to see how these women are sort of projecting their own stuff into right. the worlds of the tiny people. 
Right. Well, and this is this is what we do, right? As mm-hmm. as as parents and as adults, I think generally, yeah. right? We always we have some lens that we see the world through, and we just bestow that on our children. And it's funny because you know, especially we feel like we're going to resolve all the issues, right? Like everything that I didn't have as a child, I'm going to ensure my child has. But that's almost a way of guaranteeing that they're going to have that issue. And so that absolutely comes out, you know, Tabitha's control. Um, Ginger's Ginger's also got control issues, but in a very <laughs> different way. Um, and I think it's a little late to a little early to see what's going to happen with Violet, you know, kind of walking around with Elizabeth's issues. But I do, but I do think about that. And then the other thing that happens here is that because they are family and not family, they're kind of parenting each other's children, right? And thrusting mm-hmm. their own issues. Uh, onto the kids. And I'm sure, you know, if I gave this book to my therapist, she would have all kinds of things to point out about how they're, they're manifesting my issues on these poor children. too. But it's fiction. It's okay. We can work these things through. Exactly, exactly. But I do want to talk about the structure because it's so obvious. The story moves so fluidly forward and it's, it's great. It is, it is actually a domestic page turner, even though no one, nothing bad happens. It's just I was really, really stuck in this story in all of the best ways. But it's pretty clear that each woman needed to tell her own piece. But did you know you were going to work with this particular structure? Or how were you thinking about it when you when you sat down to start the book? Um, I did think that I did know that I was going to tell it in the structure. It's mm-hmm. funny. So just to kind of like go writerly for a second. Um, yes, I please. wrote this book. <laughs> I wrote this book in Scrivener. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those people who are not, who are not familiar, if you write it, if you write in a Word document, right, you're writing this sort of like long linear thing. Scrivener has a view where you're kind of looking at the contents over on the left-hand side. Now that's fabulous if you're writing a novel because you can jump back and forth, you can move things around really easily. But one of the things I realized when I was writing this book was that it also sort of puts your mind in this place where things are discrete, right? There are discrete little parts. And it made me wonder. So the next project I started, I actually, I wrote it in words. Sorry, there's my cat again. <laughs> um, I wrote it in word because I wanted kind of that, that linear flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it was, so I wonder when I think back on it now, and like if I had been using different software or if I were a writer who with legible handwriting, which I am not, and I were writing by hand, how would this have worked differently? But it was very important to me that each of these women, because they come from some di- such different backgrounds, they have such different views of motherhood and parenting, that is very important to me that they each get a voice. So it's it's third person, but it's alternating perspectives. And I did try to get very, very close to them. So, you know, Elizabeth, I gave her my sense of humor. So she's kind of the smart alecky one. And mm-hmm. you'll hear that in her chapters. Um, and uh, yeah, I kind of set it out that way. But you do break up each of these chapters with the stories of families who are looking to adopt. So, you know, as I mentioned, um, the children's birth mother in this book asks the um, asks this family to to, you know, find parents for for this uh, this child that she's expecting. Um, because she is still not comfortable parenting. So what I did was I decided to give kind of those a voice because one of the things that happened was, you know, we have an open adoption, a very open adoption with our son's birth family, his entire birth family, not just his birth parents. Um, And as I would talk to people about that, I got very strange, like, and shocked reactions to Uh it. 
Um, and also just people sort of make a lot of assumptions um, kind of based on their own experiences or on popular culture. And I really wanted to open up, that was really the purpose of this book is like, let's open up the conversation about adoption and, ad and adoptive families. And let's talk about all the ways in which this looks different. And I know, and there's a phrase, and, and I think maybe Elizabeth talks about this in the book or somebody talks about this in the book, like just adopt. Why don't you just adopt? Mm -hmm. um, and as though it's like an easy thing to do, you just go down to the baby store on the corner and pick out a baby. And it's so much more complicated than that um, for everybody involved, right? Mm -hmm. For the for the biological family, um, for hopeful adoptive parents, for adoptive parents, and of course, absolutely for the adoptees um, on on many many levels. So I sort of wanted to give voice, and I and I just generated this huge list of reasons people come to adoption, and um, my hope is that when people read it they will have strong opinions one way or the other about whether these little glimpses they get of people, whether they think these people would be, um, you know, good parents or are the right parents. And I think that reveals a lot about the way we think about adoption, you know, when we kind of make those choices. And I appreciated Sunny, who is the family's social worker. She's assigned to the children. The children are her priority. But it's clear that she likes these women. She likes their husbands. She likes everything about this weird little setup. But it, and when I say weird, I should say unconventional. That's, it's sure. just, I have the weird sisters stuck in my head. <laughs> because I can't think of you separate from that novel. And I realize <laughs> it was your debut. It was a while ago. I mean, but I still, you know, we came home because we had no choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk about Sunny for a second. Because you do need someone who knows this family who's a little reserved and a little pulled back, but also understands who they are and what they're trying to do. So right. when did she sort of show up in the narrative for you? Oh, she showed up very early on. Okay. And she was somebody who, um, because that is part of your life. If you mm -hmm. are going through the adoptive process, um, you know, you're going to have social workers of some kind involved with you because these, uh, these kids, the older kids, um, you know, came, came, were adopted via foster care. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are social workers involved. And it's a very interesting dynamic, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you have, if you're going to have biological kids, um, you just have them, right? Nobody comes to your house and checks whether you have fire extinguishers and looks at three years of financial statements and mm -hmm. asks you deeply personal questions about your sex life. And uh, that's what happens when you, mm -hmm. when you adopt, right? Um, and that's not to say that it's not appropriate, but it's just like, it's, they are intimately involved with your life and the, and the life of the children. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I wanted that absolutely to be part of this. And also, you know, I mean, this, this question of found family and the question of like, one of the things I think about my son is that he is so lucky that from the second we found out he existed, he has had more people who love him than some people do in their whole life, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just such a blessing. And so that's part of what Sunny does here too. Like she she genuinely enjoys her job, um, and that's a hard job to do. She loves these kids, and she, I think, sees everybody for who they are because she has that objective perspective. So she can call them on. She, she can call them on their on their you know issues of the way they can. She has a really excellent exchange with Ginger, and by the end of it, Ginger's like, oh. Uh, oh, and it's just it's done in a really loving but smart way. And it's clearly it's just it's nice to be able to see outside of these folks for just a minute. 
in a way that isn't just bound by family. I mean, Elizabeth has a very big family. John has a very big traditional family. And so just to be able to see this other perspective is just really kind of a treat. But did anything surprise you while you were writing any other family? You know, this is a funny question to ask because like this was my COVID novel. I wrote Mm -hmm. this in 2020. And so that whole year is kind of, is kind of a blur. I don't think so because I, like I said, I come to novels with questions Mm -hmm. and by the end, I don't walk away with answers, right? It would be really nice if I walked away from this book and was like, I can totally explain, you know, adoption and parenting now and motherhood. I can't, I think I walk away having made peace with Mm -hmm. things. And so I think that's where, that's where I, I walked away from it, you know, as, and, and really I was like, I'm going to write this novel and I'm going to explain adoption and adoption, adoptive families to everybody. It was like, no, you can't do that because adoptive families, like any other family are deeply complicated and everyone is different. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I don't think that anything surprised me really, but maybe the surprise was that I I didn't have it all figured out. Shocker, Eleanor, you didn't have it all figured out. (laughs) Do you have a favorite moment though? Gosh, I have a bunch. Um, Elizabeth, uh, kind of how she gets drawn into the family is a favorite moment. (laughs) um, Because it's just, it's just the way life works. There's a moment toward the end when the three mothers are together with the kids. And um, I don't want to talk too much about it, but there's like almost a little bit of role switching going on because they they know each other better and they know themselves better mm-hmm. now. Um, so I think that's a favorite moment. Oh, and there's a really great game of Would You Rather um, around the dinner table uh, partway through the book that I'm also very fond of. That was probably my favorite scene to write. It is very funny. It is a you know what? Tiny people will come up with the grossest things, but if you get the adults to play along, yeah, the gross just that moment is yeah. very, very funny. But let's go back for a second. Let's talk about you as a writer okay. and and how we got here. I mean, the Weird Sisters remind me when that pubbed. It's been a minute. Uh, twenty eleven. Okay, January twenty eleven. Yeah. All right. So January twenty eleven, we've got the Weird Sisters, and then Light in Paris was what fifteen or sixteen. 16, 2016. Okay, 16. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got this nice cadence. Mm-hmm. The first novel comes out, you've written in a very close sort of first person plural, which mm-hmm. everyone loves. I mean, that, mm-hmm. is, that is one of the joys of reading The Weird Sisters, without a doubt. Sure. And then you go slightly historical on us in the next book, uh-huh. which I had not been totally expecting. Loved it, but had not been totally expecting. And now back here we are in the present day looking Mm -hmm. at family again. So when do you know your idea is the book? Oh, gosh, this is such a complicated question. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I say that I write five bad books for every good one. Mm -hmm. Like I did not publish, you know, I didn't finish writing The Weird Sisters and immediately start writing Light of Paris. There were multiple books in between those. Um, and there are lots of lots of reasons for that. I think one of my flaws as a writer, or maybe a flaw as an author, is that like I'm a very forceful person, and so I just tend to think that I can make anything happen. And so if I have a book that's not working, I just continue to live in denial about it, you know, for forever. I'm like, no, I'm going to make this happen, even though it's terrible. Nobody wants to read it. 
Um, you know, I think both uh, The Light of Paris and this have this element of the mystical to them in the, in the way that they came to me. So The Light of Paris is half based on my grandmother's experiences when she lived in Paris in the 1920s. And my parents mentioned that to me. You know, I think I just failed writing another novel and my parents happened to mention to me and I was like, I'm sorry, wait, 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 wait. Like my grandma was in Paris, like Hemingway Paris, you know? Um, so that just kind of came to me that way. And then this book came to me because of like whatever miracle brought me my son. And so I, maybe there's, maybe I know because there's an element of mysticism, but I think I have written enough. And most importantly, I have read enough that I know when something's working. I know when, when, it's, when it's good. And I know when it's worth other people's time, because of course, you know, we're in this weird capitalist society. So we feel like whatever we write, we have to share with the world, which isn't the case. Sometimes it's just for you. Sometimes it's just for people you love. Um, but I think that there's certain uncertain element of knowing, which is like, this book has something bigger to say. And that was the lesson that my readers taught me with the Weird Sisters was like, these were not just my problems, right? Like other people had these feelings and questions too. Um, and that's really important. That's, I think, when, when a book, you know, is needs to go out into the world is when other people have something to gain from reading. And that's a huge part actually of all three books and the connective tissue again, and I know I mentioned this at the top of the show, but the idea that you can come of age at any point in your life that you don't have to be, you know, a kid whose voice is changing or their body's <laughs> changing, that you can actually be an adult. And it's really a pleasure to see the growth of all of your characters across each of the books, mm -hmm. and especially in any other family, because there's a lot of work to be done. And it makes the novel ultimately very hopeful, even though you don't present pat answers. And I'm, I'm certainly not in any way saying you're doing that. But it's a really hopeful book, especially in this particular moment. But it, that is something I really appreciate reading your novels, is that people go through it, mm -hmm. but they do actually get through on the other side. And it right. may not be what they expected, but they do get to the other side and not necessarily in pat perfect ways either, right. but they right. get And there. I think, I mean, isn't that how life is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, generally I, I'd like, I'm a pretty hopeful person. People ask me kind of about happy endings and I say, well, I don't write happy endings. I write hopeful endings, right? Because right. like you said, I do think that we generally, we generally come through on the other side and mm -hmm. it is absolutely not what we expect and maybe what we wouldn't have wanted for ourselves. Um, it's funny with the Weird Sisters, actually, I had a happy ending mm -hmm. and my editor made me untie it a little bit uh, so that it was so that it wasn't quite as as perfect. Um, but yeah, I do. I do hope this one is helpful. And these these kids are going to go through a lot. Right. As they age, they're going to have a lot of questions. Um, you know, their relationship with their biological parents is going to be tricky for them in the future. Some of them already have uh, issues that they're wrestling with in the course of this book. So I see, I see issues for this family ahead. It is not all resolved, but I definitely, I like a hopeful book. And so that's what I, that's what I want to give people. You know, something you just said made me think, are you possibly thinking about a novel centering on the children? No, no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I just, I had a moment though. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Is there a second book about this <laughs> Oh my God, there are a million. But you know, that was the, that was one of the things about this book is that I, I mean, first of all, there was just the, the logistical issue, right? You've right. got nine people in this family. They're all in a house together. That's a lot of people to put in a scene and ask the reader mm -hmm. to remember, right? 
let, you know, let alone let me remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing was, is that I had to kind of set it at a point where the kids were mostly okay, partially because their issues could just, you know, suck up the whole, suck up all the air in the room. And also because that wasn't a story I felt like I could tell, right? right? I don't, you know, I don't have the, um, the birth mother is in the story, but she's not a spotlight. Um, and, uh, because I was like, I can't speak for her and Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable speaking for these kids. There are so many adult adoptees, um, uh, who have great stories to tell. I was thinking of, um, Nicole Chung's book, which I'm now blanking on the title of. She is amazing. And you know what? I'll drop the title in the show notes for this episode because she is incredible and she was a discover pick too. Yeah. And she as, as, as well-deserved. Um, and she, uh, and her memoir is just fantastic. And I feel like as an adoptive parent, I learned a lot from her. I mean, her situation is very, very different from my family mm-hmm. situation, but I learned so much from it. So, so I don't know, like someday maybe, but I also, I borrowed so much from my friends, you know, adopted children and, and their experiences with motherhood in, in this. So um, I need to let, I need to let those kids talk for themselves. I think. Totally get that. I was just thinking of them actually as adults. <laughs> yeah. A little bit like what Jenny Egan did in The Candy House, where right. some yeah. of the stories were about. And there's one, Lulu shows up a couple of times, and suddenly Lulu had gone from being nine and 15, and then Lulu has got a whole new story. And it's kind of great. If you have a chance, it's, it's a really, really terrific read. And speaking of terrific reads, who are you as a reader? How did we get here? I mean, you have so many influences, but let's talk about you as a reader for a second. I think that I've always been drawn to kind of the stuff that I write, which is um, upmarket commercial book club books, you know, that, that kind of balance between accessibility and depth. With the Weird Sisters, I feel like it was Pat Conroy and Maeve Binchy. Um, and, but then there's also this layer, I, I think I said in an interview once, this layer of Stephen King, where sometimes I have to like, physically go into the story and pull out like Stephen King strands because I'm like that's not mine that's not mine that's not mine I have to give it back um so I read a lot of that but you know I was so I was a judge for the Discover Awards a few years ago and one of the things I loved about that is that it forced me to read books that I wouldn't have read otherwise right it's one of the reasons I love the Discover program is because I can always go and be like okay Eleanor you've read too much of the same thing like let's go let's go like push your boundaries a little bit and see what's Mm -hmm. there I just read The Lioness by Chris Bajalian. Oh, yeah. That's a page turner. That yeah, moves. Yeah, total page turner. That moves. Um, and uh, The Foundling by Anne mm-hmm. Leary. I don't know. I don't know whether Anne Leary is well-known or not. The Good House is like one of my favorite books ever. Um, and this one is totally different. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I also, that was also a page turner. But if you ask me why, I couldn't even have told you why. But I'm also listening to an audiobook called The Colony, which is about the um, uh, Mormon fundamentalist groups in Mexico. Like, so I think I'm just a really broad reader, too. And I love that. I love that about books. And I love that about what's happening in publishing now, where we're making such a greater effort to um, publish stories from um, uh, people we wouldn't have heard from before, because I have just read so many interesting things. And story, I mean... Let's not discredit story. I mean, I love to read for language. Don't get me wrong. Okay, here's the thing. I don't necessarily like to need to like the characters I'm reading about. I'm really okay if I think someone is pain. And, you know, occasionally you hear from folks who are like, oh, no, I really only want to like the characters. And I'm like, oh, that's, I, mm, 
I, I sort of push and have a little more push and pull between story and language because sometimes, you know, sometimes in the service of one, the other gets a little tapped aside. I mean, I love it when all of the things come together and I get, you know, sure. an amazing, beautiful, you know, crazy thing that just moves and I don't want to leave it. That's, that's really what I'm looking for. But has story always been the thing that's driven you? Or did you have that moment too, where you were like, oh, I've got to think about language first, or I've got to think about character first, or has it always been story? It's always been character. Okay. It's always been character for me. That's the most interesting thing to me. Um, you know, with The Weird Sisters, when uh, my editor bought it, she said, this is a very lovely book. Some things should happen in it. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. We need a story. So that really comes late to the game mm -hmm. for me. You know, I don't necessarily like want to read a 500 page novel or write a 500 page novel about like, you know, person watching paint dry. That doesn't mm -hmm. seem interesting. Um, but I am definitely, I'm definitely drawn to that. But I do also like a good story. And I get very frustrated because I, I don't so much anymore, but I used to teach writing a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's this very like MFA mindset, you know, that it's like, it's the beauty of the work that must come first. So it's like, it's okay to like story. It's okay to just want something good to read. I just tore through the the latest Ellen Hildebrandt. And that's, uh, I mean, that's probably a bad example because like the woman is a graduate of, you know, Iowa and she, this is like her 28th novel. She knows what she's doing. Um, but, uh, but, you know, nobody's going to accuse those books of being Tolstoy, but they're so great and they're so interesting. You know, Stephen King, like is the best characterization like of any working writer today. He's so good. Flown Crossley. I started reading cult classic last night. Oh, so good. <laughs> Totally. So, so there was this line where she was talking about um, these two people like sitting in a room awkwardly having a conversation. And she said it was like they were guests of the furniture. And I was like, that is the best line I have read this year. And Sloan Crossley is not, you know, um, T.C. Boyle, right? So it's nobody owns anything, right? You get, you get to put everything into your stories. And so I hope that's what I've done here. And cult classic, you are in for a treat. There are so many good lines in the, oh, oh, you're going to have a ball with that book. So here's a question, though. What's next? Um, so I'm on a little bit of a sabbatical right now, actually. So I have this young child mm -hmm. who has developed an interest in ice hockey, which is not the thing that I would have expected. Um, so I spent a lot of time freezing my butt off in uh, ice rinks. Um, so I have a giraffe. I have I, I have two drafts of two mm -hmm. things um, and I'm just kind of giving myself a little bit of time to let them marinate. Um, you know, one of the things I was uh, talking to someone about, about writing and I was saying like, you have to do a certain amount of living in order to be able to write something. Um, and so I'm kind of living a little bit and seeing which project I want to go back to. I get it. I totally get it. Have you had the same editor across all your books? I can't remember. No, no. I've had okay. a different editor for, for each book. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So what do you take away from the editorial process then, especially since it's a different relationship each time? So, I mean, I think it's a different, I think it's a different thing each time. Mm -hmm. but it's like, like I always say about children, you know, if you, there are multiple children in a family, every child grows up in a different family, right? You know, the first child has the only child experience, you know, so I think probably the most important thing to, I take away is that I don't always know best, right? You know, that I, I am not a writer who's precious. I'm, 
willing to, you know, if someone points something out to me, like there's some things that I'm like, I'm going to hang on to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's a big thing and they're asking questions, my editor for this and I worked very closely together. It was 2020. We didn't have anything else to do other than talk to each other. (laughs) We were just trapped inside the whole time. I think that that's it to kind of like trust other people. And then to really not to like mention Stephen King for like the fifth time in this, in this process, but in on writing, he talks about writing with the door closed versus writing with the door open. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. um, and to really like to write with the door closed, because if you are writing and going, Oh my gosh, you know, is this going to be a bestseller? What's the New York times going to say about this? Or what's my author and, you know, BNN going to say about this? Like you'll just paralyze. My editor for this book was great. She is, I don't even think she's 30 and here she is, you know, editing this book about like motherhood and you know there's a lot of midlife stuff in here um because the characters are older and she was just so thoughtful and wise about it uh that I'm really really grateful uh grateful to her that is really lovely to hear do you miss anything about these characters now that they're done I mean you finished the book chances are good you're not necessarily going to sit down and need to read it again yeah so do you miss these guys? I don't know. Like you're making me think again about the circumstances in which I wrote it, where I was like kind of lonely, you know? And so maybe I just miss that. Like mm-hmm. I miss kind of people being together and that feeling that you're not alone. But I have my my own tribe. Like generally by the time I am done writing a book, I really wish everyone would just like die in a fire. Because I'm so <laughs> tired of them. I'm so tired of their problems. Like, can't you people deal with this on yourself by yourselves? And it's like, no, Eleanor, they can't actually, because they're imaginary. Um, so, but yeah, I miss that that feeling of family that they develop right. over, over the mm-hmm. course of the book. And I miss um Tate and Taylor because they're hilarious. And everyone really does evolve. I mean, that's the one thing that I was sort of I knew you were going to pull it off. And again, it's because I've read your your other books, but I knew you were going to pull it off. What did you doubt? Elizabeth's arc was the most satisfying for me, without a doubt. It was the most satisfying. Tabitha's was a close second. And Ginger, I sort of knew, Ginger was always going to be fine. She was always just going to be fine. Yeah. But Elizabeth, I was kind of like, okay, are you going to really swing back to where I'm hoping you'll swing back to, just for your own sake? Right. She really did it. She took. But you know what's funny is that mm -hmm. she, I feel like, makes the smallest progress really okay but it's small but it's huge at this at the yeah. same time right like she had she just has to do one thing it feels huge but it's small yeah uh, but for her that one thing is like yeah. climbing it's it really is like climbing Everest for her yeah. and it's kind of amazing the way you put it out into the world to hear you describe it here I'm like well yeah it was only one thing but it no <laughs> not not while I was reading and it was great it's like the one thing you need to do, it feels huge, even if it's tiny. And Tabitha, I mean, similarly, where she takes that step back and it's like, oh, there are no snacks packed. And <laughs> it, I promise listeners, it will make sense when you read the book. <laughs> what I just said will totally make sense. <laughs> but yeah, it, it really, it was very satisfying to see how everyone sort of just came to their next stage. I'm not saying things got wrapped up. I'm not saying right. things got resolved. Um, There are lots of nice open-ended places where plenty of things could go. But at the same time, it was really satisfying just to see these three women have a moment where 
you know, stuff started to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Eleanor Brown, thank you so much. Any Other Family is out now. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up. When you stop in for your copy of Any Other Family, I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we've got a couple of books to talk about. Becky, do you want to go first? I can do that. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, so the book that I thought of uh, to kind of go along with that found family aspect is The Jane Austen Society Aww. by Natalie Jenner. I adore this book, uh, mostly, I think, because I am a big Jane Austen fan myself. So uh, this is, this is, yeah, just this is candy for, for any Austen <laughs> fan. <laughs> Um, but this is a beautiful story about a group of people who come together after World War II. There's a lot of pain and loss and trauma that they're all dealing with. This group comes together uh, in England, in Chawton, where uh, Jane Austen spent the last eight years of her life. And uh, they find her home that she lived in, and it is a little in disrepair. And the person who is living there and owns it uh, is not really planning to give it over to anyone easily. Uh, they're, uh, sadly, they are not an Austin fan. Uh, but the rest of this group, it's about eight people, uh, they get together because of their shared love of Jane Austen and her stories. They just make it their mission to save this home, uh, make it a museum, very much like her home actually is in England. Um, and it, it just tells the stories of these people, uh, where they're coming from, what they're dealing with. There are some very Austin romances that occur. I think what's so much fun about it is that they'll talk about different books uh, of Austin's and, and you just wish that you could dive in and, and share your, your opinions as well. So um, if you're an Austin fan, I highly recommend. But honestly, I do think anybody else would enjoy it. You're just going to love it a little bit more if you're an Austin fan. It's The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. What do you have for us? Oh, nice pick. Thank <laughs> you. you. Good, 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 good. So I chose a book by the author Ann Patchett, who I really, really Ooh, love. She's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose the first book I read of hers, which is Run. Um, it is a story of family in its varied forms. It's uh, the story of how poverty and privilege can occupy the same space but um, can very easily slip past one another unnoticed. And it's about um, coincidence versus divinity um, and how sometimes things that seem innocuous might be a lot more important. Uh, so you follow uh, the main character, Bernard, who is a former mayor of Boston, and his two sons, Tip and Teddy. Uh, this takes place over 24 hours in a very terrible snowstorm in Boston. And Bernard has very specific goals for Tip and Teddy. Uh, Tip is named after Tip O'Neill. Teddy is named after Teddy Kennedy. So I don't know, maybe their paths could lead towards politics. It seemed <laughs> very, very specific and planned out. But Tip and Teddy maybe aren't looking to go into that direction. And during sort of a, one of their many arguments about uh, the future of these boys, um, uh, there is a car accident. And this accident essentially brings another 
person into their life, a young girl. So what happens is um, one of the boys is about to get hit by a car. A woman comes out of nowhere, pushes him out of the way, is struck by the car, and is not doing well. Uh, she's taken off in an ambulance, and this 11-year-old girl who is under her care is left alone. This girl then joins Bernard and the boys um, so they can, so she has somewhere to go while this woman is in the hospital. And then things twist even more. Um, I'm, I can't share too much more about what's going on and how this pans out, but rest assured, it is a beautiful story of class and race and aspirations and chance and how that can all blend together for a beautiful and inspiring story. So that is Run by Ann Patchett. Oh, it gave me chills. Mm. That, yeah, your description did. Yeah, well, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> so that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us some support with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Mm. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I am Mark. I am Becky. You can follow our fantastic home store at BN Westchester. Thank you so much for tuning in and happy reading. Bye. Bye. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.